No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues they care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I hope my show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to join in the conversation and call in if you have a question with at 888-628-6008. To kick off Black History Month here at Shadow Politics, we're lucky enough to have with us tonight Chuck Kicks. Chuck, uh, I'm sorry, Chuck is the founder, the director, and director of Black History Celebration Committee, which recognizes, recognizes and celebrates the contributions of African Americans in art, education, literature, and politics. He was the former president of ASME and the coordinator for labor in the Million Man March in 1995. He was elected in 2019 to the D.C. Hall of Fame. His name appears on the Hall of Fame walkway. And in 2021, he was selected to be, be in the Martin Luther King Jr. permanent exhibit as a Washington, D.C. history maker. He co-hosts To Heal, a DC radio program on WPFW, and he is the founder of Bread for the Soul, an organization which provides support for children and families living with HIV and AIDS. He continues to serve with the NAACP, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship Committee, the DC Commission on the Aging, and Stand Up for Democracy in DC. Chuck is president of the Robert Bob's Hicks Foundation and serves on his board of trustees. And we're lucky to have this man with us tonight. Thanks so much, Chuck, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You know what? I wouldn't start off Black History Month with any anybody but you. You know, you know, you, you really are walking, talking history. Uh, Chuck, uh, recently um, your house, the house you grew up in, in Bogalusa, Louisiana, uh, had a marker, a historical marker place on the Civil Rights Trail in Louisiana. It was, it was erected in recognition of your family's contribution to the movement. So let's start there, Chuck. We all studied... Uh, what happened in Atlanta and Selma and Birmingham and Montgomery, but we didn't talk about places like Bogalusa. So what was it like growing up in Bogalusa? Well, I think Bogalusa was really kind of a unique place to grow up 
kind of different from most southern towns because Bogalusa was uh, had a, a factory in it, uh, and so it was not a town that depended on agriculture, uh, tobacco, any of those kinds of things for a livelihood. Uh, there was a box factory and a paper mill there, so it provided for a certain level of income for whites as well as blacks, and uh, so that were blacks who live pretty comfortably for a small city of uh, 3,000. We had an African-American community. We had our own restaurants. We had our own taxis. Uh, We had our own schools that uh, were outstanding in the parish. Uh, We didn't have counties. We had parishes in Louisiana, and we were Certainly, uh, in Washington Parish, we were the number one school in that uh, in that uh, parish. We had good teachers, uh, and we were self-employed. Uh, self-employed means that blacks worked at this box factory, and they earned a decent living. Uh, and so they were able to buy homes, and there was no sharecropping uh, in Bogalusa. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting, unique place to grow up. Uh, kind of an independent place, surrounded by racism. Not that racism didn't exist. It was just, as long as we stayed in our places, everything was fine. Uh, That didn't mean that, for an example, that growing up that we didn't get school books. We got school books. They were the used school books from the white school. We never got new books uh, and those kinds of things. Uh, We never got... Uh, a school building. Usually, our schools were, uh, were built after white schools were built, so it was it was segregated, uh, and we got the short end of the stick uh, in terms of segregation in terms of the, the town, uh, and that was kind of what life was like. But we were independent, and we we grew up, and many of us went off to college. Many. Many of my classmates and things, we joined uh, armed forces. And uh, for a while, things seemed content. Although growing up, we didn't know uh, the many discriminations that were going on in the city because we were children. But my parents were we were aware, and many other adults were aware of the discrimination that was going on in, in uh, Ogalusa. Uh, well, uh, and I assume, though, that that the fact that you folks, uh, black folks in Bogalusa were doing pretty well, that that annoyed some white people in Louisiana, did it? Did it not? I mean, look, Chuck, I remember that one of the problems that I have with my kids when we talk about black history is that they, they, they act like the civil rights movement was 100 years ago. I remember going to Louisiana, strangely enough, Louisiana, with my parents when I was eight years old, and seeing the white and black restrooms and water fountains and not being seen that blacks weren't allowed in certain restaurants. So this wasn't really, really ancient history. It was not that long ago. And 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 is it true? I mean, did you, I mean you had to deal with things like the Ku Klux Klan, did you not? 
Right. I, I mean, we didn't, weren't really aware of the Klan until we really got active in, until the movement came to Bogalusa to Washington Towers. Right. Well, for an example, there certainly was discrimination. I can remember when we were growing up and we would go downtown to shop, uh, and probably we didn't pay any attention, but I'm sure that black people had to wait in line longer than white people, and uh, certainly when we went to the Woolworth for the five and dime store, we didn't, we couldn't go to the lunch counter and if we wanted something. I, our parents would say, "Oh, that's all right. We'll go by Miss Joe's Cafe, and the food's better there anyway." It was like uh, those kinds of substitutes because we that we weren't aware of until I think we got older uh, that we began to see the difference with it, and then of course. Uh, we, as, as many places in the South and many cities, uh, for many for a while, we knew our place, uh, and so we survived. And uh, like I say, in not being in a major city, but a small city, uh, but an independent city, uh, uh, we had the benefits of all kinds of things that perhaps that were more available to blacks in places like New Orleans or Baton Rouge and uh, places like that. But certainly uh, we were not we were uh, not lacking in terms of some of the kinds of things that were available to us. We could go uh, shopping, and of course there were white uh, there were white water fountains and black water fountains, and I think for many of us we didn't really we didn't know the difference um, because we right. went old parents and we uh, drank out of the water fountains that we were supposed to. We went into a store to buy shoes, and I think we waited until a waiter a uh, cashier who was white came. Uh, and we shopped in J.C. Penney's, and our parents waited patiently. And so a lot of things we, as children, were not aware of, but as we got older, uh, we began to see the difference. And I think we were at the crest of the civil rights movement, we being those of us who were uh, in the 70s, uh, the early 70s, uh, 70s, 1970, 73, 74, we were at the beginning of the civil rights movement, and then we began to see the difference. Uh, and it was a matter of time. I remember uh, there used to be a saying, and they said it throughout many small towns in the South, that sooner or later the movement was coming, uh, that people, some people waited in anticipation of the movement getting to where Bogalusa, to get into wherever it was uh, in a small town. We could see it in major cities or big cities, or even in places like Mississippi. But uh, I think everybody knew that the South was changing. Sooner or later, it would be at our doorsteps. And uh, as young people, I think we come grew up faster in terms of wanting our freedom uh, than we had being when we were children and were just content to go along with, uh, to go along because we didn't know any better. Well, and that, yeah, and that, that, 
that happened all over the country, did it not? I mean, I grew up in North New Jersey uh, as a young person. Uh, highest black population in America when I was a kid and never had a black teacher, never saw a black fireman, never saw a black police officer, you know, and we accepted it too. We just thought, saw it, you know, just didn't see anything wrong with that until we got older, right, and saw it. But, but it had an effect on you. Uh, you paid a price. You went to you went to Southern University, and you were forced to leave in real, retaliation for the fact that your father was a civil rights worker. Wasn't that true? That he was a he was a a, a player in the in the local civil rights movement at Southern I, I University. That, made you leave? Well, I was expelled in the middle of the night, but I I think that one of the interesting challenges about uh, those kinds of situations, because I think that uh, there was a time, I guess it was probably three years before I went to Southern, three or four years before I went to Southern, uh, there was a march on the Capitol by the black students at Southern University. And, of course, when they marched for uh, better accommodations, more money for the schools and all the kinds of things that Southern was lacking that LSU had, uh, and also to discriminate the restaurants in, in Baton Rouge. Uh, I, I think that being a state school, the governor had control of it. And I think that at some point, the governor called the shots to the president of the university, and uh, he said, I want that history out of there. And uh, they expelled me. But I think a bigger, a more significant thing that, and there are two other incidents that before I went to Southern and they had to march from Baton Rouge at one point, the governor uh, called the president of Southern University and uh, he said, we're closing Southern down because the students have uh, marched on the Capitol and made all this, these demands. And the president called on an assembly, um, one I think it must have been like a Wednesday morning or something, and he said to every student at Southern, you have 24 hours, get every piece of cloth you own, every piece of paper you own, everything you own, and be off this campus in 24, 24 hours. And if you're not off, the state troopers will come and take with, take your belongings and sit, them, sit you and your belongings on the highway. And I think the question uh, sometimes for uh, that I later looked at is that whether or not when you're in those positions that you, that you sacrifice, if the president had not expelled me, if when they called the boycott on Southern, if he had not closed the university, and he said that you will be notified when the return and that they they noticed they expelled 25 black students, and the university was reopened. I think those were enormous challenges in terms of did you, if PS says I'm not closing the university down, then then the state troopers would have came, and Southern might have been closed for uh, three years. And what do what do black students do about an education? 
there were instances where uh, when they were forced to integrate white communities, close the whole schools, close the school system down and created private schools. And there were times when black students didn't go to public public schools for three years because they closed them. And so I, I think it was not an easy task for blacks in leadership positions that were controlled by uh, white racists. And that the question was, did they make a, did they sacrifice the whole university or the whole student body for, uh, for in, in, uh, in, in retaliation for one student or three or four students or for 25 students? You know, those were tough choices. And they, well, I don't know what I would have done if I'd been a president. I don't know what my dad would have done because my dad might have said, well, we're just going to close the university down. There won't be no education, and uh, the world will see. Uh, but there were other presidents who made different decisions, and they expelled students to keep the universities open so black kids could have an education. Uh, I just think it was a very difficult time. Uh, certainly I did not have the insight to see things from that perspective when it was happening to me, and for years afterwards I was very, very bitter about what happened to me at, at uh, Southern. Uh, not that, I mean, things did turn out for the best for me because I ended up being kicked out of Southern and then going to Syracuse where I became the first black student body president and a whole new world opened up for me. Uh, that probably would have, my life would have probably been different if I had not been kicked out of Southern and stayed at stayed at Southern and I probably would have stayed in Louisiana and it doesn't mean that my dad and them would not have done what they did. Uh, but uh, Well, let me you ask know, you, I mean, is there's, this so... just difficult, uh, I mean, challenging ways of trying to weigh history uh, and certainly what the governor did uh, and other races did and um, Mississippi, the Ole Miss, and all these states, and University of Alabama, uh, were not the right things to do. And uh, well, but and sometimes. Well, let me uh, ask you, Chuck. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No. Well, I, let me ask you: Is what you're talking about? Is this so much different than what's going on in D.C. today? We see all these charter schools popping up, and most of them do not pop, pop up in the white Northwest neighborhoods. The majority of these charter schools are in the black neighborhoods in Anacostia uh, in Ward 7 and 8. Uh, isn't that a similar thing that black people are going in there? They're going into to, they're forming their own schools, charter schools, because they're not getting what they need out of the white school system or out of the, the central school system? I, I mean, is that so much different? I, I think that there are two things about that. Number one, I think charter schools uh, started as a way eventually that we will see that the government uh, will be able to fund and put money, like the money that they Put into charter schools, they'll be able. They will eventually be able to put into private schools and parochial schools. 
I think that's the whole concept behind charter schools mm-hmm. uh, is that they want because you can't take public money, uh, taxpayer money, and, pri- and put money into private schools or parochial schools. But that is, you know, the ultimate goal of charter schools is to grow it to a point where it will be, there will be a move to uh, put money into uh, taxpayers' money into private schools and, and parochial schools. I think that's the overall concept of uh, charter schools. I think that for some people, uh, they have seen uh, challenging cities uh, in terms of, you know, if you went to Dunbar, uh, you certainly got a better education at Dunbar uh, High School than you did at Anacostia High. Uh, and I think poverty plays a part in that. And I think that uh, it's almost like a culture that if you can convince people that and when you're in poor neighborhoods that you can't get a good education and that if you let us bring in charter schools uh, and let them be run by white and upper middle class blacks, that things will be better. Uh, but that's not always the case. Uh, but I think that there is an overall plan uh, that people will eventually see that the, the whole concept of charter schools is a, is a way to eventually uh, take taxpayers' money and put it into private schools which are predominantly white and parochial schools which are predominantly white. Well, let me ask you, you know, you talk about um, the acceptance that uh, you had in Bogalusa um, using black water fountains, et cetera, because you didn't know any difference until you got older. Let, I remember that uh, Dick Gregory came to my little white college many years, 50 years ago, and talked about how we accept, because we're all hippies in those days, we accept the image that's uh, portrayed of us in the media and by the government. Has that happened with black people? Is that still going on with black people? We see this situation with Tyree Nichols, for example, in Memphis, who was, there are now five black police officers who have been brought up on charges for beating this young black man to death. Do 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 blacks still accept their inferiority? I don't, I don't think blacks have ever accepted inferiority. I think there have been limitations that have forced blacks to be in, in, in uh, certain conditions and that uh, the people in power, uh, which have been the predominantly white community, have been able to control the pace, uh, the press strings, been able to control uh, the political uh, climate in, in uh, many places. But I think black people have understood uh the culture of police uh, in this country, and that uh, when you uh, when you see and go back to the civil rights movement and see how police treated whites, uh, that they had the way they treated them, 
uh, and when they were in the civil rights movement, they were oftentimes more uh, anxious to beat the whites than they were the blacks uh, because they saw them as betraying or betrayed to the the power of, of white power. Uh, but I think that uh, blacks be there in uh, Anacostia, be there in Ward 5, I think uh, that they, they uh, we see the difference. Uh, I think that uh, policemen uh, are policemen, uh, and that in certain neighborhoods, that if you're a policeman in Georgetown, be you black or white, that you uh, will act a certain way. I think that if you're a policeman, uh, be you black or white, and you're in certain other neighborhoods, you can get away with a lot more. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons that, you know, for so long we didn't have black policemen. When once right. black, they started hiring black policemen, they got brainwashed into this culture of what it's like to be a policeman and the power that you can have over people, and particularly black people uh, and poor people. Uh, and I, I think that it's a culture that has predominant uh, permeated itself in terms of the, the power that policemen can have over people, but they can't take that power and go to certain other neighborhoods and do that. Well, since you brought up the culture, have we? How much has the culture changed? I mean, where do we stand in the movement today? We have. Uh, let's talk about blacks in government, for example, who have been elected. We've had Obama as president. Uh, we've actually asked Doug Wilder to come on our show. We think he's going to be on uh, during Black History Month. And he was the first governor, elect, first black governor elected in America, which is hard for me to believe because he served from 90 to 94. We just elected Wes Moore in Maryland as the first black governor governor ever in the history of Maryland, uh, uh, has, I mean, where do we stand on the movement today? Or, or, or oh, I think the movement is alive. I think it is making progress. I think it's at a different era. Uh, I think when I look at movements like Black Lives Matter, uh, and I see the, the amount of people who are involved in Black Lives Matter, that certainly the, uh, a lot of the protests are, are being uh, of the majority or large number of, of uh, protesters are white because they understand the concept of uh, a sharing power and that uh, unless blacks can be, be at the table, uh, that they are not free in terms of what they believe democracy to be. Uh, I think to, uh, today the movement is different. I think we moved from uh, the civil rights movement in many places uh, to a, a different kind of level, and it's not necessarily uh, about access to uh, restaurants and uh, schools, but it's about uh, governing your community. And I think we need not uh, lose sight of that. When we get a, a, a black governor or a black mayor of Newark, 
uh, New York or whatever, that one of the things that uh, uh, Gary Indiana, one of the things that the reality of it is is that you're in a city and you're the mayor of that city, but that your budget comes from the state legislatures, and the state legislatures regulate where the money is going to be spent and what the cities get, and that's done by whites. And so until blacks can uh, and whites can share that power at a at a different level, uh, that you have a picture of a black being head of a town, but then he has no money. Look at Jackson, Mississippi. But then the state legislature in Mississippi is run by whites, and so they can regulate where the money's going to go, how much is put into Jackson. Uh, and so conditions stay bad, uh, and we can't expect uh, one person, uh, uh, a mayor of a city, and even if they have a city council, uh, to be able to make the kind of changes that they like to when they don't have the c- control of the purse strings. Isn't that one of the... And isn't that one of the things we suffer in Washington, D.C., in our attempt to become a state? Isn't it um, uh, traditionally uh, we've had southern whites that have run the city through what used to be the 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 uh, a congressional committee that actually controlled the city, um, and part of our problem has been a majority black population, has it not? It, it, it that that if we were a majority. Uh, white population. The the there are many activists that believe we we would have gotten statehood, and that this has been one problem. And we certainly have seen that in the development of Washington D.C., haven't we? That blacks came to Washington because of the federal government, because they could you know get decent jobs and and, and be treated better. And as the city became more black, uh, um, it was harder and harder for us. To get things like home rule, is that not true? Well, I, I think that uh, statehood for the District of Columbia is on the way of coming. Whether we see it in our lifetime or not, it it will come. Uh, I I believe that uh, there was a period in time that uh, when DC was not predominantly black, we didn't have statehood when it was right. predominantly That's white, true. and I think there's a transition there. Uh, and I think now that there are more people who are moving from other cities and, and had the right to vote, uh, I think it becomes a lot more uh, important to them to have a say in their, in their government. I have a say in their laws that they, they won't change and how things ought to happen. Uh, and I think that's an awakening uh, in uh, some of the the, uh, the population that have moved here uh, from other parts of the country uh, who have understood the power of voting uh, in their, when they were in uh, New Jersey or be they in California and they get here and they don't have those rights and privileges and they are and they are more. Committed to to making that change, uh, I think it's uh, there was indeed a time when uh, blacks came to D.C. because the federal government did offer 
better opportunities and jobs uh, for blacks than in North Carolina, or South Carolina, or Indiana. Uh, and so I, I think that the reality of it was that we didn't think of, many did not think of the importance of statehood as opposed to a better job uh, and having a better uh, being able to educate, provide for education for your children and all those kinds of things. I think uh, at that particular point in time, there was a minority of, of African-Americans who saw, like Josephine Butler and those people who saw the value of statehood. But I think there is an awareness now uh, that uh, statehood is important, that when they voted, uh, the, the the citizens of the District of Columbia voted for statehood, uh, that there was an overwhelming number of blacks who voted in favor of that, and not only whites, but blacks also. I think there's a, uh, an awareness of it. I think the challenge is uh, learning how to organize uh, a city or community uh, to fight for statehood, and I think the fight for statehood is at a uh, a bigger level than sometimes people see because it's not that people in D.C., citizens don't want statehood. I think it is the fact that there are people and people in South Carolina who sit in Congress who don't want statehood for, for the district, and until we can uh, strategically organize uh, and go out to other parts of the country and elect people who are going to have the same mindset that we have about democracy for everybody and representation equally, that that's the fight for statehood. The fight for statehood is not in the District of Columbia. If it was left for the residents of the District of Columbia, we'd have statehood, yeah. but it is not. that is not the fight. The fight is changing this, the, the Congress so that we can bring people into the Congress who will favor uh, the district becoming a state. Well, you, you bring up an important point, which is that Washington was white until 1960. It was like 1964, 1965, that the population became majority black. So we did go 160 years without statehood uh, well, being predominantly white. Uh, but and let I me ask that, you, yeah. That being that 160 years, that I think whites were contented because they didn't have any problems. Uh, and I think in terms of uh, Congress ran the district and Congress provided for whites who lived in the city, whites who worked in the federal government, I think those were just easy times for whites to be in the district. When the population began to change and they moved out, then it became a different ball game. But I think when the city was predominantly white, uh, there were not laws that were written to not limit whites in the District of Columbia. They got whatever they needed from Congress because the Congress was white and the district was white. And they saw it as their baby to take care of because there were whites who lived in the city. They didn't live in the suburbs. They didn't live in Vienna. Uh, they lived in D.C. Yeah. And they were taken care of. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you, 
Uh, what about affirmative action? Is is affirmative action is the time for affirmative action over, or do we still need affirmative action? I think affirmative action is needed. I think it's harder to come by, but I certainly think it's needed. I think for people of color, not just African Americans, but uh, people of color from uh, uh, Latin Americans to Asians to Native Americans, I think affirmative action has a role to play for everybody. Uh, and that there's uh, limitations when you don't have affirmative action. I think it is harder to to maneuver now because I think we have a conservative courts uh, throughout this country in southern areas as well as in the Supreme Court uh, that make affirmative action more difficult. But I think it's, it's necessary. Well, let me ask you, first of all, tell me why is Black History Month important? What, why is this an important? Why is this important that we have we've set aside this month to discuss black history? Well, I think that black history is important in February because it is a reminder that black history is not only in February, but it's black history should be every day for everybody, uh, not only for blacks, but for uh, whites, Latinos, for everybody. Black history is American history. And so I think that what black history does is that it promotes this concept of not only February, but black history is every day for everybody. And that we point that out in February, but black history is a continuation of celebrating the achievements of African Americans, not just in February, but throughout the year. I think that when we look at Kwanzaa, uh, that that is an important statement about uh, the importance of of uh, black history. Uh, I think that uh, black history is important uh, because it points out the importance of Juneteenth. I just think there are all kinds of periods that uh, February alludes, reminds us that black history is every day for everyone and throughout the year. Let me ask you, should there be a should we have an Asian History Month, Asian American History Month, and a, a Latino History Month? Do you think that would make sense, or should we set apart, uh, 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 um, I think, you know, month or, or is the Black experience so unique to America that that is something different? Well, no, I, I think that uh, Asian American Month. Uh, Latino uh, might, uh, all the just as important because the contributions of uh, Asians, the contributions of Latin Americans and Native Americans have been, as well as African Americans, have been overlooked. Uh, that they have been ignored and that I think that when we think about American history, that American history ought to be Native American history, American history, ought to be uh, Latin American history. I think all of those. I mean, just the fact now that uh, we've uh, we've changed this concept, or we didn't to adopt this concept that 
Columbus Day uh, is not really Columbus Day. That uh, Columbus did not find America because America was already here with Native Americans here. And so I think the concept and education is growing, but I think these days and months are important to remind Americans of the contributions that they ought to be more inclusive. And I think uh, every year, I mean, when they do Women's History Month now, I think that's that's so important because it's inclusive of women, period, and their contributions. Uh, but not only should they just not only be for March, but it is a reminder of the contributions that women have made uh, and sacrifices they've made to this country uh, for America and not just for white men. Well, you know, we've had several, I mean, that's a good point, and we've had several guests on our show that have talked about reparations. What do you think about reparations? Should there be reparations? For black people, and how should we how should we go about that? Obviously, we're not going to make. I certainly think that payments. reparations are important. I certainly think that black people are owed reparations. I am not sure how it ought to happen. There are different theories from direct payments to their um, uh, theories that there ought to be a money set aside for. Uh, African Americans to go to school, to open businesses, that is not necessary by direct payment. Uh, there are people who are looking at those concepts and trying to figure out how reparations ought to be uh, given out to African Americans for as many years of, of slavery and free labor. Uh, I certainly support reparations. I don't have a clear picture of how that ought to work. I think that uh, there are people who are looking at that, who are talking about that, who are weighing into that. Uh, I support the idea, but I don't have the answer. Uh, My answer is that there ought to be and there should be and there will be reparations for African Americans. Uh, But I'm not sure that how that ought to work. Well, you know, we, we see that people, you know, we talk often about the fact that our great strength as a nation is the fact that we've been this great melting pot. Um, and it's obvious that blacks want to be, black people want to be a part of that. Uh, we see, I work with HBCUs, for example, and we see that uh, enrollment in HBCUs went down. I don't know if it's going up again, but it went down for quite a while because they were popular when black people couldn't get into white colleges. But now that black people can go to any college in, in America, they, that, uh, with that, except for a handful of, of the really you know famous ones like Morehouse, uh, the rest of them seem to be suffering from a, a lack of enrollment. Uh, it, it, I assume that's because black people are more interested in being in the mainstream than anything else. Is that true? I don't think that that's necessarily true because I have, I know of many cases, and including uh, some of my nieces and nephews who went to predominantly white schools. 
uh, and then decided that they needed a black experience. Uh, and so they've gone to Morehouse, they've gone to Spelman, they've gone to uh, Howard, uh, because they feel that they need a black experience. I think that the fact that uh, universities are now opening up uh, so that more blacks can go to those, go to uh, private schools and uh, even state schools that were predominantly white. But I think one of the things that is becoming prevalent is that even while there are uh, black students going to predominantly white schools, there is a new movement uh, that started in uh, the late 60s and early 70s to have black study classes, to have uh, black history programs, to have uh, all kinds of black cultures on white, predominantly white campus, so that because you're there doesn't mean that you can't experience being black. I think that there's a whole group of that going on in, in this country uh, that is growing every day, and so that, uh, and of course, white schools have more money than uh, black schools, so they can offer uh, more scholarships uh, to predominantly uh, black students who uh, can measure up, uh, uh, who have the grades, and so I think that that's a, uh, a choice that black people now have more choices, but I think uh, there's still uh, a movement that uh, black students want to go to school, and uh, for some, they're they're going to predominantly black schools, but there are others who have other options. Uh, And some of those who have gone to predominantly white schools uh, or been in predominantly white communities, they go, they choose, they're choosing black uh, schools where they can have a black experience. Uh, and I think that's important. But I, I think, think that so. in mo- like for example, Syracuse, we have a, uh, we have a whole black student, uh, student union, uh, and that the university is growing every day with black students and trying to be accommodation of what it, what it's like to be a minority on a majority of white campuses and how you, how you make Black students feel that they're still black and it's okay to be black at a white school and that you don't have to fit into their culture, but you can have your own culture. Well, you know, it's something that that I've always wondered about because I went to a big state school. I went to the University of Maryland and we were all hippies. I was a hippie, you know, and I believed in, in, in embracing all cultures. But when I would walk into the cafeteria, all the black students were on one side of the cafeteria and all the white students, with a few exceptions, of course, were on the other side of the cafeteria. So uh, we can mandate these things and we can pass laws and we can change things, but the culture moves much slower, does it not? It moves slower than, than it, 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 well, the, only, the only thing that can change the culture is time, isn't it? Well, I think that there are, different ways of, of, of looking at that and addressing that, and I think that sometimes uh, it doesn't mean that it's racism because black students enjoy eating with black students, and right. sometimes white students enjoy eating with white students. I think the challenge becomes when there are, there are white students and black students who want to get together, 
And uh, these other groups don't want that to happen. I think that becomes a challenge. I think it's okay for black students to uh, go into a dining room and if they're comfortable eating with black students and if they're white students who are uncomfortable eating with white students, but they don't have a problem when black and white students, some black and white students sit down to eat together. I, I think that that's going to be the way of the world. I think that there are black uh, neighborhoods uh, in D.C. and then there are uh, mixed neighborhoods and then there are predominantly black neighborhoods and there are predominantly black, uh, white neighborhoods in D.C. And some of it's economic, but some of it isn't. But then I think there are neighborhoods like uh, Alice Morgan and, uh, and maybe now Shaw and Southwest where they are mixtures. And that that's okay. Uh, and then I think there are now, now neighborhoods that where whites are moving over to Southeast for whatever reason, but they they find themselves being okay to be over there and, and uh, being okay. I I think that the challenge is when people don't want people to do those things. But I think it's also uh, okay when we can understand that people have different cultures and identities and we can allow, as long as it's not biased, uh, that it's okay to exist uh, in that in that framework. I agree with that. Everybody nice. black doesn't have to want to mix with white, and everybody white doesn't want to have to mix with uh, blacks. But I think the challenge is that we should not uh, make sure, we should make sure that blacks get the same opportunities. As whites do in, uh, in terms of what they what they are uh, perceiving to be or where they want to live, and that uh, when when uh, you live in a black community, that your uh, taxes are higher, but your your value is lower. I think those become the challenges uh, in terms of uh, racism. But I think it should be okay for black communities to have houses that are worth fifty thousand dollars or a hundred. A million dollars, and they be they be they be given the same uh, credence in terms of when they sell it or the taxes that they do for white homes at the same price. Well, I agree with that, and I I I don't think it was racist when I was in college. I think that if a black student had walked up to our table and asked to sit down, everybody would have been fine with it. But I sure. think it's more it's more like the law of physics, you know, that a a body in motion tends to stay in motion, and a body at rest tends to stay at rest. And I think, you know, we're just comfortable in the way we've been raised, and and that's why the movement's important. That we can't got to keep on, as Doctor King said, right? We got to keep on moving forward, right? I don't, I don't think that that physics is physics, but I think human beings are. I think one of the things that we can see that. Certainly, I give credit to lots of whites who could have just stayed where they were, but what they, who believe in this principle of democracy and what democracy means and should mean for everybody, and that they have made enormous sacrifices uh, to make those to make democracy democracy for everybody, and that they could have stayed where they were and been comfortable. But I think there's a certain amount of humility uh, that people, both black and white, have strove 
to make things better for everybody. And uh, I think that that's part of what uh, whites believe in in terms of democracy and what it means, and I think that's what blacks strive for, uh, to make democracy democracy for everybody. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's a perfect note to end on, Chuck. We're running out of time. I just wonder if there's anything that you wanted to add that we haven't talked about uh, or, or how people, I know that I have to point out that you work for the DC libraries at one point because my wife's a librarian and, you know, I've always got to praise librarians, but is there a way that people can find out more about black history? Can you give us a website they can go to or, 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 or how they can reach out to you? Well, of course, there is the D.C. Public Library, uh, and they have all kinds of listings and events. There is a black history calendar that's put out by the Commission on Arts and Humanities, and, of course, they can go to DC black, uh, dcblackhistory.gov uh, uh, and dcblackhistory.org uh, to find out more information about some of the things that we're doing in the D.C. Black History Celebration Committee. Uh, one of the things that I'd like to uh, remind people about or to stay tuned for is that uh, there are two major projects that we will be, we being the Black History Committee, will be t celebrating, and one of them will be remembering the, uh, the 55th assassination of Dr. King in April, uh, and also that the uh, 60th anniversary of the March in Washington will uh, be taking place on August 19th, and there will be all kinds of uh, things that will be going on, and we will be doing some things. One of the pieces that we'll be looking at, we'll be looking at the role that blacks uh, in D.C. Uh, and whites played in the March on Washington because there were two concepts, particularly for blacks, and one uh, group of people, the government closed down, the federal government and D.C. government, and they were telling blacks don't go because of March on Washington, that it was going to be a riot and there was going to be all this bloodshed and stuff like that. And so they were trying to frighten black people from going to the March on Washington. Uh, well, I encourage people. Another group of black people who uh, went anyway. Uh, and uh, we're going to be uh, interviewing some people on both ends of the spectrum to talk about how they saw the March on Washington and its benefits, uh, and we'll be doing some of that uh, on the, the week of the March on Washington in August. Well, I hope people will reach out to you and reach out and be involved in these activities. We've run out of time. Thank you so much, Chuck Hicks, for being with us. Uh, you're an amazing person, and uh, I, I just I think I wouldn't want to start Black History Month with anybody else. So. We thank Chuck, and we leave you with a song like we always do. Uh, this is the Boys Choir of Harlem with We Shall Overcome. We dedicate this to Chuck and his family, who were so important in the Civil Rights Movement in Bogalusa, and to everybody out there that believes that we should all partake equally in our democracy. Thanks for being and with I us. Thank you, Senator, for all that you do and for your radio program and your fight for statehood and fairness for the people of the District of Columbia. Uh, well, it's God always bless a pleasure you to work with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. 
Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.